Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, first book in the New Testament. Matthew 22. It has been said, it's not original with me, but I think it's true. The two greatest days of a person's life. Number one is the day you was born. Number two, the day you find out why. I think that's true. Two greatest days of your life was the day you was born and when you find out why. Has anybody here ever found out why? Some of us still looking, aren't we? Some of us looking for love in all the wrong places, aren't we? I never met a more confused generation trying to figure out why we're here. How many of you believe that you're here for a purpose? Now, you, you got one of two choices. You can either believe that you're a biological blob and, and you're just here. There's no reason. Nobody's behind it. You can believe what modern science, modern science is not wrong. It's just incomplete. You can believe that you're just the product biologically of a man and a woman and you're here, period. Or you can believe that you're here with a purpose. You can believe that before I knit you in your mother's womb, I knew you. You can believe that whom he foreknew, he predestined. That you had a destiny before you were ever born. In other words, you believe you're here for a reason. You're not just here to eat cheeseburgers and burp and croak and... You're here for a reason. Well, this book, I just want you to listen this morning. This book tells us why we're here. And in this passage, this is one of the great passages of the Bible where God Almighty, through His Son Jesus, just distills all of life down to two reasons. There's two reasons to be alive. And it is the goal of life, the purpose of life. And He just, you know what a preacher is. A preacher is somebody who can take something simple and make it so complicated the Pope can't figure it out. Jesus Christ can take the deepest issues of life and make them so simple a child can understand them. Yeah. And that's what he does right here. All right, he takes the great issues of life, the two great issues, he just distills it down to two things and he says, this is why you was put on the planet. Let's read it together. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 35. The Bible says this, Matthew 22, 35. 22, 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Not, not lawyer like, I got a ticket, lawyer. This is a teacher of preachers. It'd be like a seminary professor. A lawyer asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? What do you ask him? What's the most important thing in life? What's life all about? All right, watch what Jesus, watch how he answers him here. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You know what he said? Life is all about a relationship with your creator and relationships with people. He said, that's life right there. And then he went on to say this in the next verse, verse 40, I think it is. Yes. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You know what he said? The whole Bible's wrapped up right there. That's the whole Bible right there. Everything that's written, every commandment, everything I tell you can be summed up in have a relationship with your creator and have relationships with people. That's life. So I was put on this planet, I believe, for a reason. I was put here to have a relationship with the one who created me. And I'm going to go a little bit further, a little further. I was put here to enjoy it. And I was put here to have relationships with people and enjoy them. Once you look at number one, turn with me to Acts chapter 17, which is the great passage in the Bible that tells you why you was born. <clears throat> In case you're wondering why you was born, here it is. Acts chapter 17. This is an unusual passage. 
this man who's writing this, Paul the Apostle, he was a great thinker. He was a great scholar. And he got to go to the philosophy capital of the world at that time. It was Athens. Today it would be like Oxford or Cambridge in England. But he got to go to Athens one time and he got to appear before all the scholars of the world, all the great thinkers of the world were there. And he was listening to their philosophies and what they had to say. And he said, may I present what I think? And they gave him a chance. He got to stand on Mars Hill there in Athens and he got to explain what he thought the purpose of life was. And I want you to listen to what he said to the greatest thinkers of that day in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. He said, God who made the world, Acts 17, 24. God who made the world and everything in it. Pause for a second. Yay or nay? Do you believe he made the world? Do you believe he made everything in it? Trees? You? All right. He said he made everything there is. He is Lord of heaven and earth and he doesn't live in buildings made with hands. He's not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Verse 25, he gives life to all breath and all things. You agree with that? You believe you're alive because he lets you be? The air you're breathing, is it his gift? All things, your breakfast, was that from him? All right, got so far so good. Verse 26, he's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. He created everything. What does that verse say? He decided the day you'd be born on. He determined your pre-appointed times. What else did he determine? Where you'd be born, your dwelling, your, your boundary. He decided the day you'd be born. He decided the place you'd be born. There's a hand behind all this stuff, folks. But that still doesn't answer the big question, does it? What's the first word in the next verse? So, there it is. We've already seen he created everything. He inhabited the earth. He determined the day you'd be born, the place you'd be born. The next verse tells what's so mean? Why you'd be born. This is the reason you were born. And he said, I created these people so, verse 27, so they should seek the Lord and find him. He's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his children. There it is. That tells me he created me. He determined I'd be born on September 7, 1957. He determined the place, the Catholic hospital in Charlotte. But why was I born? I was born to seek God and to get to know him in a friendship and a father-son relationship. And in him, I could live, move, have my being. I was born to be the friend of God. That's half of it. That's love the Lord your God with all your heart. Have a relationship. I wasn't born to serve God. He don't need me that bad. No more than I had my children to serve me. I do need them, but I was born to love God. I was born to be the friend of God. I was born to enjoy my father. But that's only half of it. Then Jesus said, now there's another side of this too. What's the other half of it? Jesus said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then he said, the second thing is this, people. You love your neighbor. Be in relationships with people. So do as you and I were created to do two things. Have a relationship with our creator and to have a relationship with people. Let me go a little bit further. To enjoy people. All right. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Life is a team sport. No Lone Rangers. Sorry, John Wayne. You got to take Tonto with you. Life is a team sport. It was created to be done with people. Now, I'm personally, I'm a loner. I love being alone. I like being alone with God. 
And, uh, but dear ones, I wasn't born to be alone. What's the first thing on this planet God said wasn't good? Remember? So everything was good. And he saw that man, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. He had God. He said, that's not enough. So he made a helper, help me. He made another person, said, life's to be done in teams. Life's a team sport. So we're going to talk about a team sport. A lot of times I like to ask people what business you're in. And they'll tell me pharmacy or sales or something. And I always correct them. Let me tell you something. Everybody is in the people business. I don't care if you're the greatest salesman ever lived. If you can't manage people, you're going to go broke. I don't care if you're, I don't care what you do with your occupation. If you don't learn how to manage people, you're in trouble on this planet. Because there's eight billion of us staring at you. The secret to, listen, the secret to life is not to become a great piano player or a great hard worker. It is to manage people and manage relationships. You learn how to manage relationships and how to have relationships, you'll have a great life. This is, this is the purpose of why we were here. It's learning to manage relationships. Sort of a lost art in our land right now. Can I get a witness? All right, today we're going to start it. We're going to talk about this for a while. We're going to start today. Five building blocks from the Bible about building great relationships. Building great relationships. Let me make an announcement. Great marriages don't happen. They are built on purpose. Great families don't fall out of trees like ripe cherries. If you've got a great family, somebody built it. Great friendships don't just happen. Let me tell you something. People don't get lucky. Things happen for a reason. And people that have great friendships have them for a reason. And since, my, since I was created to have a relationship with my creator and with people, I need to learn how to do this. And I need to make it happen. So we're going to talk about five building blocks for great relationships. In other words, how to have, you can call this, you want a great life? Learn to have great relationships. Everybody say this word with me, work. I knew you couldn't pronounce it right, but I'm going to say it anyway. Five things this Bible says brings me into great relationships. Let's learn them and then let's be doers of the word. Number one, first block is humility. You want, you want great relationships? Embrace humility. Now, humility has got a bad rap in our land. It's one of the most misunderstood words. Let me tell you what humility is not. It is not acting pathetic, pitiful, and looking down your nose at yourself. It's not humility. That's stupidity. <laughs> what is true biblical humility? Let's keep this so simple. A lot of times you can learn what something is by learning what the opposite is. The opposite of humility is pride. Well, what is pride? What's the, what's the center letter in pride? Pride is when the whole universe spins around you. I'm in the middle. It's all about me. This universe was created just for me. It's when you're the center of everything. That's pride. Well, what is humility in a word? Humility is not when, you, when you're pathetic. There's a great passage in the Bible that talks about humility. And it says this, have this mind, this attitude that Christ had. He was God Almighty and you don't get no higher than that. But he humbled himself and came down to take care of the needs of people. Humility in the word is to look out for people's needs. Turn with me to that great passage in Philippians chapter 2. What a great passage to study. And Philippians 2 is where we find the definition of humility. Humility is not real vogue in our nation anymore. That's why our relationships are pathetic. We need to get back to it. Now, true humility is just so simple. It's captured in one verse in Proverbs chapter 2, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2. And here it is. 
Uh, and the whole passage again is on humility. But let me give you one verse that captures what true humility is. Verse four says this, Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Humility is to look out for the interest of other people. It's when the world don't spin around you anymore. All right, everybody's got needs. Yes. Agreed? But this is talking about, look, listen, most of people's needs are not physical. Now, if people are hungry, they need food. People are naked, they need clothes. We've got some people who need clothes in this land. But those are not the big needs of people. What are the big needs of people? Love. Encouragement. Do you know anybody needs encouraging? Why don't you ask God to encourage them? Guess what he'll tell you? I ain't down there. <laughs> the great needs of people are at heart level. You know what people really need? They need for somebody to look at them and listen to them. That waitress that's Don Juan ran off and she's trying to raise that kid by herself. She really don't need you crabbing about your steak. The world don't spin around you, remember? <laughs> Nor your steak, Jake. <laughs> Judging from the looks of things, you might ought to ordered the broccoli. <laughs> I'm looking out for the needs of the waitress. She needs for you to look at her like she's a person and not just there for you and ask her, how you doing today? People need to, somebody to listen to them. People really need somebody to care about them. One of the saddest verses in the Bible, King David, he said, nobody cares about my soul. You know, it's true humility is to say, it's not all about me. You know what your mate needs besides the most gifted person in the world that you are? Your mate needs for you to look at them and say, what do they really need? All right, men, I'm going to help you because you need it. You're married to a woman. And let me explain something to you. Men and women are different. I can't get amen out of that. Quit wishing she'd be a man. Really. All right, let me help you. She don't need you to be smart. All right, she, you go in the house. She's sitting there. She's upset. She might be crying. You say, what's wrong, baby? And she tells you such and such has happened. And you being the idiot that you are, you walk out the door. Listen to me. She's a woman. She didn't want you to go fix it, ding dong. So you see, a woman says, we got this problem. So you, you're going to go fix it. No, 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 no. She wanted you to sit down and look at her and lean in and use your hands and, and feel what she's feeling. And she needed empathy. She didn't need it fixed. It's called humility. Looking out for the needs of other people. If you're a man, fix it later. Fix her now. <laughs> girls, I'm trying to help you here. All right, girls, let me help you. Forget it. Good luck. Hope things go well with you. Listen, if you're going to have relationships, you have got to get off yourself. Don't mean you can't take care of yourself. Did that verse, verse 4, did it not say look out for your own needs? But look out for the needs of other people. We have really got to break the self-focus that our land has been gripped with. Great relationships come from looking at people saying, what do they really need? Most people just need a word spoken in due season. What do they really need? Number two, number one is humility. First block is humility. Number two, adaptability. Adaptability. 
let's use a better word, bendability. How many of you love to bend? I ain't putting up with this crap no more. I have about all I can take. If they think, add it. You know what we call them people? Single. You're close. Turn a few pages to the right, two pages, Colossians chapter three, where the Bible talks about adaptability, bendability. What's another word for bendability? Marriage. Then <laughs> you, you are not going to have relationships if you don't learn how to bend. There's something inerrant in human, fallen human nature that does not want to give in. You're going to be lonely. You, you can be right and lonely. We want, listen, our goal is not to be right. Can we get off this thing about us being right? God's right. The rest of us are screwed up. I don't want to be right. I want great friendships. I want a great marriage. I'm too old to be right anymore. I want to be warm. I want you to look at what the Bible says here. This is about bendability. Colossians 3, verse 12. 3.12. Therefore, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on. What does the word put on mean? This is not natural. You're going to have to work at it. Because you're not born with this. You've got to put it on. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness. Why would he put the word long suffering? He's not talking about him. He's talking about relationships with people here. Why would he put, the, why would the word suffer be in something talking about relationships? Anybody ever had to suffer in a relationship? You're going to be in the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band if you don't learn how to suffer. <laughs> Bendability. All right, what's the next word? It's in verse 13. Bearing with one another. See, that, that bearing with one another, the Greek word's better translated bending. Bending. You've got to bend and give in if you're going to be in relationships. I'm not talking about letting people get away with murder. I'm not talking about dishonoring God's word and breaking the law. I'm just talking about if you want everything your way, you better move to a Pacific Island by yourself. We've got to get off of it. Listen to me. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Having your way is highly overrated. Having friends is valuable. And because we're all screwed up, somebody going to have to give. So I'm going to be me. I'm glad Jesus didn't think like that when he faced the cross. At the cross, Jesus said, I will bend. I will give to help them. That's why he's got so many friends. It's because he learned to bend. And he bowed himself at the cross. Adaptability or bendability? Listen, Doc, it ain't worth it. Get over yourself. Get over it. Smile. Bend. Make her happy. Your life, number three. <laughs> number three. And a lot of people get mad about this one. Take it up with the dude who wrote it. Likeability. If you got friends, you got to, there's a principle in the Bible called likeability. And you're going to have to embrace likeability. Don't just sit there looking brain dead with your mouth open. Let flies come in and out. Say something. <laughs> Turn with me to the likability in Proverbs chapter 18. I want to show you what the Bible says about likability. There's a likability factor in certain... Have you ever looked at certain people and wonder, why do they have so many friends? Why do people like them so much? Well, here's the answer. This is so simple. Remember, Jesus makes things simple. 
I'm, I appreciate that. I went to college, believe it or not, which is where people confuse you and then give you a C because you don't understand what they're talking about. All right, this is the principle on likability in the Bible. And this is a simple verse. Everybody should memorize this and hold to it. Uh, Proverbs 18, verse 24 says this. Proverbs 18, 24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. Got it? If you want people to like you, be likable. Clean yourself up a little bit. Comb your hair. Smile. Act like somebody. Dear ones, if you want people to adore you, be adorable. If you want people to like you, become likable. If you want people to enjoy you, become enjoyable. Don't live like a fungus. I mean, <laughs> this is not hard. Work at it, Bubba. I've had women tell me, say, my husband won't pay me no attention tomorrow. And I think, God have mercy. I don't blame him. <laughs> Look at you. Fuzzy bedroom shoes. It was bought in 1978. Granted, gravity takes its toll, but <laughs> sister, it got hold of you. Do something. Now listen, what is wrong with putting out a little effort to get what you want? We have got to start putting out some effort for relationships. Treat people a certain way. It was, nothing happens by accident. The Bible said, if you want friends, become friendly. Treat people the way, somebody should come up with a saying, do unto others maybe <laughs> as you want. I don't know. Let me ask you, don't you understand the whole kingdom of God is built on the principle of sowing and reaping the law of the harvest? You've got to sow friendship to have friendship. Listen, listen to me, quit sitting around crying because you ain't got no friends. Pick up the phone. Nobody invites you to their party. Plan one. Sit around waiting for it to fall like an apple. Make it happen. Smile. Paint your face up. Do something. Likeability. You say, my kids hate me. I don't blame them. You got the authority, but you don't have the likability. What's wrong with being good to your kids? That's why they need to stay home. Make home a place they want to be. Put a pool table in. Put a pool in. I put beer in the hall to do something. <laughs> you know, quit wishing and start fishing. Get the show on the road, Doc. Likeability. We've gotten away from likeability. It's like in this nation right now, I'm going to be as mean as hell and wonder why folks don't want to listen to me. Can I help you here? Uh, listen, I learned a great verse from a great prophet years ago, and it goes like this, just a spoonful of sugar. <laughs> it's not usually what you're saying, it's the way you say it. Say it right. You, you can say things and disagree with people without telling them they're fools first. Help the people. Help yourself. Let me tell you, what, you, know, you know what great is? Friends are great. Having friends are great. It, I tell you something else, you could be a friend of the person you're married to. I caught you off guard there, didn't I? I never, whew, golly, thought about that. Dear ones, the greatest thing in the world is a friend. What do you say? Love God, love people, 
relationships. Relationships. Why is it that men will spend money, buy magazines, and go get training to have a better golf swing? You suck. You ain't going to be no good. You're not going on tour. You ain't going to make no money. Give it up. When's the last time you took a course on how to be a friend? When's the last time you read a book on how to be a friend? Waste some of that money on your relationships. Start living for the important stuff. I've, watched, I've sat with a number of people when they died in my 40 years. Nobody's ever said, tell me how much money's in my bank account. Mark. That's not how it goes. Bring me my driver. I want my driver here in the bed beside me. It's your golf club. What is it all? When it gets down to what's important, what's it always about? People. Family, friends, people. Work on that thing. Number four. All right, we got humility, adaptability, likability. Number four is forgettability. This is the big one, forgettability. I get tickled with the heaviest things. These people have been married 60 years and ask them, what's the secret? I don't, have to, I don't have to ask. I know what the secret is. The secret to a long marriage is a short memory. <laughs> Can I get a short witness on that? Don't. I love to do stuff like that, kind of get a witness. And then I'm watching the ones that go, yeah, oh, I know what their home's like. <laughs> the ones, the secret to a long marriage is a short memory. The secret to long friendships is a short memory. The bane of a short marriage is a long memory. All right, it's called forgettability. And uh, it's right up there with forgivability, which is the same thing. Now I've heard people say, well, you say forgive and forget. You just can't forget. We're not talking about erasing your memory banks. We're talking about a decision. I want you to look with me what the scripture says about this. You're right there in Colossians. I'm never going to go back to Colossians. When it talks about, and again, Colossians 3 is dealing with relationships with people. Relationships with people. And I, I mean, this is just, it's like my father says, okay, this is what makes for a great life. And then he says, now here's how you get it. One, two, three, son, do this. Relate, relationships with people. Let's read it again, verse 12, because sometimes we need to hear things twice. Colossians 3, 12. As the chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, this is not natural for a lot of people, Work at it. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a what? Oh, you're so good at it during the week. Say it in here. If anyone has a complaint, let me make an announcement. The complaint department is closed. If anyone has a complaint against another, as Christ forgave you, drop it. There it is. You say, but get off your butt. <laughs> Let's break with the butt stuff. Dear ones, it's not about defending yourself. It's not about who's right. Do you want great relationships or not? Forget it. But now what did the Bible say? I'm supposed to forgive a certain way, am I not? What did it say in there? Look at that man hanging naked on that cross, beaten to death. He did that so I could be forgiven. And here's what he said, Hebrews 8.10. Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Amen. That's forgettability. And here's what he says. I'll never ask you to do something I hadn't done first. I don't want you to ever forgive anybody more than I've forgiven you. Has anybody forgiven a person more than Jesus forgave me? It ain't happened yet. All right, listen to me. You can stew in it. You can roast in it. You can burn the house down with it. Or you can forgive it and get up and go on. Short memories, are, short memories make for wonderful lives. And if you're going to have relationships, it is forgivability. 
They're just this. Get over it. I'm not talking about let crime, let crime go on. I'm not talking about people not dealing with the consequences. I'm talking about right in here. The hatred and the anger and the burning and the, and the garbage that's tearing our nation up right now. Dear why do you think the Bible says the secret to a great life in Philippians 3 is forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead? I go one of the greatest marriages in the world. We'll celebrate 40 years in a few days. You know what the secret of that marriage is? It's not just the person I'm married to. There's a lot of it. But there's a whole lot of forgetting along the highway. There's a number of exits that could have been took. And guess what every exit was called? He did. He did. That was a she did back in 1986, but that's been a long time ago. It is time to get over it. Now, let me tell you why you better master this one. You better master this one. If you're going to live in this nation, you better master this one. Let me tell you why. You have an enemy. And that enemy knows this is the one I work on right here. This is the one I go after. You have an enemy and he has the ability to get in your head. He has the ability to put thoughts in your mind. He has the authority, the ability to put feelings in your feeler. We need to quit living out our feelers. Start living out this book. And he loves to pick at stuff in the past. When, you, when you're tired, when you lay down at night, when, you know, do you remember how we buried the hatchet? Y'all remember that? Does anybody remember that old phrase, buried the hatchet? Left the handle sticking up about like that right there. Trip over it again. Do you remember? He plays on this one right here. Master this one. Tell him the past is history. I'm tired of hearing it. And you, you better master forgettability if you're going to have a life. Let me do one more. Number five, perceptibility. You got to get your mind right, as Grandpa used to say. Perceptibility is perception. Now, everybody has a perception. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry about hurting your feelings. I'm fixing to hurt your feelings. No human being sees things clearly. Everybody has a prejudiced view on everything. We all have our perceptions. If you say, well, not me, you're the worst of all. You know why the Bible said, don't ever judge anything until I get back? Because nobody can see clearly like he can. Only God sees things clearly. My, my view is jaundiced. All of our perceptions are prejudiced and jaundiced by upbringing, political preferences, religious teaching. None of us see things clearly. But you've got to learn to see things the way God sees things, people. I'm going to show you what's happening in our land today. If you're going to have great relationships, you've got to have a Jesus perception of people. You've got to start seeing people the way God does. Here it is. I'm going to put it, all the Bible teaches in one word. One word. See the best and forget the rest. That's the Bible up one side and down the other. You've got to learn to see the best in people. You say, but they're such idiots. Uh, put on, put on. We have to work with you a little bit. Let me tell, I don't know if you ever thought about this or not. I'm going to tell you about two people and their perceptions. Jesus Christ and Satan himself. How does Jesus perceive things? How does Jesus see things? Well, I'll just quote it to you. This is 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Jesus Christ, which is love, always sees the best in other people, always believes the best in other people, and always hopes the best for other people. Did he live that out when he walked on the earth? Every day he was here. Uh, of course, my favorite, there was a man named Simon. He was a dumb redneck fisherman who'd cuss you and cut you in a heartbeat. He walked up to Jesus. What's the first thing Jesus ever said to him? 
you're no longer Simon. I'm changing your name to Petra. Peter in English. He said, from now on, you are, you are a rock and you are stability and strength that people can build on. And the other guys went, wrong. Who's he talking to here? God could see what they couldn't see in this man. God sees the best in people. And as Romans 4 says this, he calls those things which be not yet as though they were. And then he brings them out. God sees the best in other people. And then he brings it to pass. He brings it out. On the other hand, we have a guy named Satan who is active in the earth today. How does he see people? Revelation 12, he is the accuser of the brethren. He always sees the worst in people. Romans chapter 8 calls him the condemner. The condemner who picks on their weak points. You'll never see a better side-by-side comparison of the living God and the master of hell than in the book of Job. Now, once you listen to both of them, you can find both of them's hearts right here. Listen to what they said. God Almighty said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job a good, upright man who eschews evil? How'd God see Job? Was Job a sinner? Notice God didn't point it out. God saw the best in him. God said he's a good man. He called him good. That's how God sees people. Satan answers him in the next verse and says, the only reason he serves you is because you gave him so much money. Take the money away, he'll cuss you out. How does Satan see people? He looks for the worst in them. I'm going to ask you a question. Who's been in your head? Not what's in your wallet. Who's in your head? Who is in the head of this nation right now? Let me tell you, you want great relationships? Learn to see the best in other people. Choose to see the best in other people. I've been watching people raise children for 40 years. Let me tell you what I've learned. You need to walk very humbly when it comes to people and their children. When you hear people say things like, if that was my kid, you know what you know about those people? They ain't had none. (laughs) When I was just in my 20s, I preached a sermon, 10 Steps Guaranteed to Read Godly Children Across Generation. I've modified it now that I've had children. Three things that might help if everything goes well. (laughs) We need to walk very humbly when it comes to how other people live. Very humbly. But let me tell you what I've watched in 40 years of watching people raise children and this lines up with Scripture. You can lock them in their room. You can make them do right. But if you don't see the best in your kids and bring it out of them by speaking it, you're going to damn those children. That's why the same book, Colossians says this, Fathers, don't be so hard on your children that you break their spirits. Let me tell you something. A bulldog can whoop a skunk. That's not the goal. The goal is to see the best in people and bring it out. You know what I've noticed about great marriages? Mates, everybody got something good in them. And everybody's got a mess in them. Let me tell you about great marriages. That's two people that have learned to see the best in each other and talk about it. If I just had her husband. (laughs) Listen to me, woman. You'd screw him up too. Leave him alone. (laughs) See, I'm seeing the best in people there. We got to learn to see the best in people. Who are we going to be like? All right, let me tell you something. If you want a great life, don't don't worry about being a great golfer, a great singer, a great technocrat. Be a relationship champion. Learn how to build great relationships. 
Dylan's, it's all, he said it's all about get a relationship with your father and learn how to handle relationships with people. Amen. I've never had more fun in my life than, learn, than practicing relationships. I just love, I'm a relationship guy. Our father's relational. Why do you think he created so many of us? He's looking for a relationship. He don't need help. He's got angels. But master relationships. Now let me do, I need to throw in a little, here's a 20, here's a, for our day. <clears throat> you know why this can be a little tough at times? Because people are screwed up. Aren't we? All of us. And let me, let me encourage you by saying this. It's going to get worse. Is that there you're being negative. No, I'm being prophetic. 2 Timothy 3, 1 says, as, this, as we move closer to the second coming of Jesus, people are going to get harder to live with. Right. The, you know, the number one prophecy is not the blood moon we saw this week. It is that people are going to get hard to live with. That's 2 Timothy 3, 1. Did I need to tell anybody that? We're in a day of, of escalating tension in relationships. So it's going to be a little tougher, but listen to me. It is necessary. All right, I'm going to put forth a principle from Scripture. See if you agree. You can have one of two things in your life, but you will never have both. Two things will never go together, and they are easy and great. Easy and great will never be found together. If you want an easy life, you'll never have a great life. If you want a great life, you can throw the easy into garbage. There was no such parrot land, Jimmy Buffett, parrot head nation. It don't exist. Sorry, Doc. You're wasting away all right, but that ain't what we're looking for. If you, great marriages require effort. Easy marriages, forget it. You will never have easy and great. Listen to me. Easy is easy. Great is great. And when I get to the end of my life, I don't want to say, I only had burp about half a dozen times. That's some life you lived right there. I want great relationships. I want a great marriage. I want a great family. I want great friends. And I want to know my father. Forget the rest of it. Everything else is go. One last word. Does anybody here have a life goal? You, you don't have goals in life? Sure. You, you need to have goals in life. I'm reaching retirement age. I'm fixing to get to be a burden to my children. I'm looking so forward to it. It's going to be on. A lot of people don't like to. Why not? All right, listen to me. You need to have a life goal. A goal for life. I'm going to tell you, we have, got, we have set the wrong life goal in this nation. I saw this guy a while back. I'm riding in traffic, pickup truck in front of me. It was a Chevrolet. I expected that. And he had a bumper sticker on that Chevrolet. And the bumper sticker said this. And it was his life goal. It said this. He who dies with the most toys wins. We all think. That's sort of become America's life goal. You know what Jesus said about that? A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, I would say it goes like this. He who dies with the most toys is dead. And your children are fighting over your toys. You screwed them up bad enough while you're alive. Now you're making it worse. But you know what I thought? I meditated on that bumper sticker. Change one word in that bumper sticker and you got the Bible on a bumper sticker. He who dies with the most friends wins. And one of them needs to be named Jesus. You know, you know what, the, what our life goal should be? Friends. How many friends can I accumulate? How many relationships can I build? And how great can I build them? I'm sitting at the lunch counter one day, me and this old man was going fishing years ago. 
and uh, people would come by and they were saying, hi, and I was saying, hey, good to see you. Hey, get a haircut, get a job. He's talking to the nigga by there. <laughs> he said, uh, he said, son, you've got a lot of friends, don't you? And I said, no, sir. I got a lot of acquaintances, but I got a few great friends. And I said, the most important thing to me is that I be the friend of God. I get up every morning wanting to be the friend of God and to enjoy Him. And I want to be a friend of that woman I'm married to. I'd like to go back to the Garden of Eden. We pretty, we live, well, that's about where we live right now. I mean, she wears clothes most of the time, so it's not perfect, but we're getting pretty close down there. You keep everything else, give me the relationships and I win. He who dies with the most friends wins. Let's work at it. Well, Jesus, we want to praise you and thank you today. Well, sir, can I ask you a question? Why is it that we have to lose something to appreciate it? Why, why is it that we'd have to lose a mate or a friend or a family member to appreciate it? I pray, I do not, I pray in Jesus' name, do not let familiarity breed contempt in the most valuable thing we've got. It's not our cars. It's not our houses. I mean, thank you for those things. I got to have some place to lay down at night. Thank you for the nice clothes and all this stuff. All that stuff is given just to make the other two work. I pray in Jesus' name that we will value friendship with you above everything else. That we will walk with you and talk with you and let you tell us that we're your own. And then the joy we share while we tarry there. Bring us into relationship with you. I pray for every person in this room to know you're not chasing him. He's chasing you. Thank you for that. Lord Jesus, that's only half of it. You said the other half is people. I pray for every person in this room that we'll, we will put on, make the adjustment, learn, whatever we call it. Relationships are more important than anything on this earth. Pick up the phone. You be the first to call. You text. You go over there. You build it. You invite. And that we will work on our relationships. The Lord Jesus, make us masters of this relationship thing. You were the greatest. People wrestled to get near you. They like to... They like to have killed you trying to get close to you. Every sinner in town wanted to eat at the table with you. It's because of the likability and the beauty of God. We want to be like that. We trust you for that. Thank you for your goodness and grace. One more time, we wanted to bow our hearts and say thank you for this great land we enjoy, the freedom we enjoy, the blessing we enjoy, and honor the memory of those who sacrificed so much to let us enjoy it. We'll never forget. And we give you the praise and glory. Father, help us to win win at this game called life by building a friendship with you and with people. We trust you for that. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.